In part one of our series on the Moores murders, we'll meet Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. We'll take a look at their childhoods, their first meeting, and Ian's slow manipulation of Myra, eventually leading to the start of a sadistic killing spree. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you're a fan of romantic British love stories, stick around, because the couple that slays together stays together. This is Necronomapod. That's Hyde Police Headquarters, the center of one of the biggest ever police search operations in this country. Inside now, detectives are studying a police file, which day by day grows in content. And it's collecting evidence which might confirm the killings of young children up on the Pennine Moors about seven or eight miles from here. And police have taken away from the left luggage department at Manchester Central Station two suitcases. Just uh, before we went live here, and you were you were starting to tell me the story of the uh, Kanye uh, Gap situation, and I said, "Hold that thought. Let's put this on the air." Yeah, he. Uh, what happened? Was that last week or so? He quit Gap. He decided he got, <laughs> didn't want to work with them anymore. He didn't want to sell that shit out of a garbage bag anymore. Yeah, well, that's what I was telling telling you about. Was that um, they had like a grand opening kind of deal where they had like all the clothes at the front mm-hmm. on display. And he kind of was not happy with that. He's like, Nope, made everybody pull it down <laughs> and put them in big ass fucking garbage bags all in the front of the store. And people had to dig through to find their size and stuff. <laughs> That's what I want to do when I go to the mall and mm-hmm. shop. Dig, dig through trash. Dig. Yeah, of course. That sounds fun. But that, that doesn't matter anymore. He quit. So, And it was supposed to be like, uh, more appropriately priced. You that's know, what it was. Gray hoodies. And that's what it was billed as. Is that it was going to be more? It was going to be like easy stuff, but it's going to be affordable. And then twas not. No, I got like the pre-order email when it first when they first uh, dropped that stuff, and yeah, hoodie a plain hoodie was like two hundred bucks. Like <laughs> no fucking way. Well, th- this week he came out and said he had never read a book in his entire life. Right? Mm-hmm. That is ridiculous. His mother was a college professor. And, there is no way he doesn't. He's clearly a book. mentally ill, right? <laughs> like almost beyond mentally ill. Ten years ago, one of the first interviews I ever heard with Kanye, or like paid attention to at least, was him on the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, where they discussed literature and lyrics to music and all of the above. You know that he claims he's not a part of. So mm. I'm going to call bullshit on that one. He's a smart guy pretending. He is an intelligent guy with an unchecked mental illness i think that's fair Unche- un unmedicated bipolar disorder. well he was diagnosed as having bipolar okay, disorder so unmedicated yeah okay he, he was medicated for one album and it was very coherent and okay. things were normal and then uh not so much afterwards brett easton ellis the author who wrote uh, american psycho correct yeah and uh, I read uh, less than zero is what my uh, okay. initiation to him was. Not a big fan, actually. The movie's good. Movie's good. His novels, eh. American Psycho is good. I find his characters to be very whiny. I don't know. I don't know. I, that, I don't. I, I don't love his characters in his novels. Is American Psycho an instance where the movie's better than the book? Possibly. I don't think I've ever. I did not read American Psycho because I saw the movie first mm-hmm. and I liked it. I don't yeah. love it. I like it. It's good, but I don't know. 
because I read a few of his others and I was not a fan of his, his novels. So okay. I stopped reading him. Yeah, that's fair. The other thing I will say about Kanye is that when he quit gap last week, uh, he said that he wasn't going to argue with people that were broker than he is. <laughs> so I'm assuming he was talking about the gap CEO. Like, Oh my gosh, he has more money, than <laughs> <laughs> but he was wearing the new Yeezy sunglasses for this interview. It was on CNBC or something like that. All right. Those are only twenty dollars, so that's oh, that's wow, affordable. That. How about that? But they're silver. Bret Hart has been wearing pink ones since the late eighties. They are a straight ripoff of Bret Hart. They are Bret Hart sunglasses. <laughs> yes. As soon as I saw them, I'm like, well, yep, okay. They're a straight ripoff. Are you and they even have the elastic band on them and everything. Oh like, my God. like they just took Bret Hart sun or he just took Bret Hart sunglasses and made them silver instead of pink. Are you permanently off the Kanye train at this point? Yeah, I kind of am, honestly. No. Wow. Yeah. This is breaking news. That whole Pete Davidson thing rubbed me wrong. The way he was talking about him. Didn't love that. It's kind of weird. Just be gracious. I've been wearing be gracious a little bit. Yeah, I've been wearing Yeezys for like six years whenever the V2s came out. So I'm like, it's time to switch it up. I haven't been wearing my Yeezys recently. I mean, they're still expensive shoes. You should still wear them. Yeah, it's spent money. I yeah. mean, you know. At this yeah, point, but I'm just kind of like over it. Switching it up a bit. That's right, okay. I'm not like boot like a... I'm not boycotting my Kanye. Right, You've been wearing the Hey Dudes lately. I have been. They're very yeah. comfortable. Very comfortable. Good shoes, yeah. Just switching it up a bit. And reasonably priced. And they look like homeless shoes, much like Kanye's outfits. <laughs> Except they're reasonably True. priced. All right, good chat. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, <laughs> at Necron. Oh, sorry, we're not there yet. Um. So, hey, we're back to killing. This is going to be some good stuff-ish. A couple of weeks off, but uh, back to the killing. Another highly requested uh, topic. Yeah, there. I think these two are right up there with uh, Paul Bernardo and um, Carla Hamocha. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of requested. Uh, requested a lot by the fans in the UK. It's kind of like this Bonnie and Clyde serial killer. Yeah. Situation. Well, we got two parts. Let's dive in. Ian Brady was born on January 2nd, 1938 in Gorbals, which at the time had the highest crime rate and poverty rate in Glasgow. He was born to Margaret Stewart, who worked as a tea room waitress, and we don't know who his father was. All Margaret said was that he was a journalist for a Glasgow newspaper that died a few months before Ian Brady was born. Margaret could barely afford to live on her own, so paying for a babysitter was out of the question. A lot of times as an infant, Ian Brady would be left alone for extended periods of time while Margaret worked her job as a waitress. After four months of this life, Margaret realized that she was not going to be able to give Ian Brady the basic care he needed. So she put an ad out that she needed someone to adopt her baby. And this wasn't like a real adoption thing. This was just an ad saying, I have a baby that I want to get rid of pretty much. Seems like she was in a tough spot. Yeah, maybe yeah, not, not too f- many options. Which right. is like a Craigslist ad type, like kind of, and yeah, no fault to her. Um, I mean, this is 1938, a single mother or an unwed mother. You know, yeah. it's not going to fly. I also want to say that people in the UK love your British pronunciations, Ian. So this mm-hmm. should be good. I'm looking forward to the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> like we don't even try. We don't care how it's pronounced. 
We right. pronounce it a fucking American style, right? Win a few wars and maybe we'll say, <laughs> fuck you want from us. You guys would be speaking German if it wasn't for us, right? So don't worry about how we pronounce shit. Um, You'd be Highland fucking Hitler still if it wasn't for the American GI. So we'll pronounce it however the fuck so you feel you'll like. You'll take what Ian has to say and you'll learn to love it. <laughs> Thanks for downloading, by the way. A married couple, John and Mary Sloan, answered Margaret's ad and they did an off the books adoption. Margaret would sign over her welfare checks every month to the Sloans, and she would be allowed to visit Ian Brady on Sundays. Margaret would make these visits every Sunday, and she made sure to tell Ian Brady every time that she was his mother and Mary Sloan was to be called Auntie. As time went on, Margaret visited less and less. Then when Ian Brady turned 12 years old, Margaret stopped visiting altogether. She got married to a man named Patrick Brady and moved to Manchester. The Sloans had four children of their own before they brought in Ian. And it wasn't like this thing where they brought home a baby to get extra money from Margaret's government assistance or anything like that. They provided Ian Brady with a loving and stable household. He just didn't care to be a part of it. In his early childhood, the Sloans described him as, quote, lonely, difficult, and angry. However, hindsight being 2020, the Sloans did admit that they should not have allowed weekly visits with Margaret because... That's it's confusing. just not healthy. It's confusing to a child. And then when, especially when she's hammering it into him that I'm your mom, I'm your mom. Yeah. And then she just kind of yeah. like, well, out. why don't I live with you, mom? Right. And then she just leaves. Yeah. So they seem like generous. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Nice people. are just mm-hmm. trying to do some good in the world. Not, you know, for financial gain or anything like that. Yeah. That was just like the deal on the side. They're like, okay, yeah, we'll take him. But. They saw an ad in the paper. They're like, well, we have the capacity and the the resources to help this family, right? And there's something to be said about being left alone in a crib uh, for hours at a time. I know there was like sure. a like a mini documentary. I can't remember what it was. A Russian exactly. orphanages, or right? Chinese, yeah, absolutely. That those kids end up like kind of like sociopaths because they're just left distant and unable to yeah. form attachments. Yeah. Because they're yeah. just left alone completely. Absolutely. With no attention. Everybody even, you know, if you animals don't make that need instant that. connection to your to your mother at the point of birth, sure. So yeah, I think there's possibly right off the bat with Ian Brady, there's some some uh, damage done that can't be undone. That makes sense. Ian Brady recalled a moment from his childhood when he was nine years old that the Sloans corroborated, so it wasn't like made up serial killer shit like peewee gaskins making eye contact with the cobra when he was six years old hey look harry potter was a possible tongue <laughs> and he spoke to cobras so do you remember peewee <laughs> said I he do. looked at that cobra and got hard <laughs> when he was like five years old <laughs> i do not <laughs> but that's awesome he, yeah, he told a story going to the fair and someone was like a cobra like was able to control a cobra and they made eye contact, and when him and the Cobra made eye contact, he got hard. Fuck yeah, he did. Five, five years old. <laughs> okay. I'm a real boy. That's a real boner. So when Ian was nine years old, the Sloans took him out of the Gorbals for the first time. They went to the moors of Loch Lomond, where they spent the day having a family picnic. After they ate and the kids played, the family decided to take a nap in the grass. 
when they woke up, they couldn't find Ian. Um, and here he was about 500 yards away at the top of a very steep hill. For an hour, Ian stood there and just stared at the sky and the view from where he was standing. And the Sloans were yelling for him to come back, but he wouldn't acknowledge them or turn around. Eventually, his two brothers climbed the hill and got him to come down. And on the way home, back to the Gorbals, the Sloan said that Ian was the most talkative he had ever been in his life. And Ian later said that it was the most profound experience he had ever had in his life that lasted into adulthood. It's like he bonded with the more? Just this sense of alone. Like, I'm completely alone up here. and I can do whatever I want. Yeah. That's what it seemed like, this real powerful feeling of I'm out of... The slum area yeah. in the open. I guess it's a big, like for Americans, I guess, who don't know what a moor is, it's just a big open tract of land. Yeah, I had to look be, it up yeah, to see what it was. It might be covered know. with, I guess they say like heather, which is like a, a shrubbery kind of, or it could be a wetland, sort of like a bog, like we would call it. But it's just like, and there's like big hills and stuff and yeah. dips in there. An open, an open thing of land. Yeah. Maybe partial water, maybe not. So for kids that grew Midwest up in the- Ohio, it's Midwest United States. <laughs> <laughs> All the Midwest United States. Or the Great Plains, even. Yeah. So for a kid that grew up in the slums in the crowded city, kind of a culture shock and just kind of different. absorbing it. Yeah. Regarding school, Ian was very smart, kept to himself, and was bullied a lot with kids calling him a, quote, sissy all the time. I'm going to pull that clip. Ian was very smart. Oh, you think you're very smart, huh? (laughs) I don't love that I share the same name with him. It's not very often I come across another Ian. Oh, there's going to be lots of good clips from this one, I'm sure. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Ian's getting upset. (laughs) Ian doesn't like this. (laughs) When he was 11 years old, he scored an almost perfect score on testing to be accepted into Shawlands Academy, which was a school for gifted children. Once he got to Shawlands, Ian started to get in trouble. At first, he got caught smoking cigarettes and little stuff. Then he pretty much quit going to school and doing his homework and started to get in trouble with the police. Around this time, he became obsessed with Hitler and the Nazis. He taught himself German, read Mein Kampf, and learned as much as he possibly could about the Nazis. So it's going a little off the rails with that. It seems odd, a natural enemy of yeah. his people, right? They were essentially bombing his land several years before that you would be looking up to the Nazis, right? Seems strange. I don't know if it was like the the pageantry of the Nazis that caught his attention. I think yeah. that's what caught Jim Jones's attention when he was a kid. Cause he was all about Hitler mm. and all that, the fancy uniforms. And it just seems to be very close after the war to be worshiping Nazis. When it's you, not healthy. When you grew up yeah. in the UK. Yeah. Between the ages of 13 and 16, Ian had been charged three separate times for breaking and entering and burglary. The third time he was arrested, the court told him that he just needed to get out and move to Manchester with his mother, Margaret, and her husband, Patrick Brady. Ian hadn't seen his mother in years, and he had never met Patrick, but the move was made. <laughs> Mom's like, uh, what's his name? <laughs> yeah. well, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Once he the got- little bastard I had like 20, 15 years ago? I haven't seen him in a long time, Judge. It's pretty wild that the court just forced that. Is weird. 
They're just like, no, nah, you're, you're yeah, going to take your kid sure back. Not sure I'm going to even recognize him when he gets out of the suitcase. You know what I mean? Because that's healthy for him, too. Mm-hmm. I ever put you with the family that didn't want you. Look, I've already heard enough to, you know, with this kid's childhood to say, hey, yeah, he's probably going to have some problems in the future based on what's happened to him up to this point, right? Problems, yes. The problems we're going to get into, I don't think so. I think that's not enough. The, you think most people who yeah. have gone through this are probably turned out okay? Yeah, there's something in you that makes you do what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah. Okay, I think that's, that's in you no matter what. That's fair. Have either of you ever read Mein Kampf? I tried to because I was all into World War II. I think I told you guys that story about like in high school, and I I know you were in the World War II. I don't remember the story about the book. Well, like the the guy that the teacher I had while I was in a wheelchair for my oh, car yeah, wreck yeah, yeah, that yeah. like did all the history stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I tried to read it there. It's very kind of boring. I didn't finish. It, it was really long and really? kind of drawn out. It's been on my list since high school and I've just never I've you know, not, pulled the no. trigger to read it. So once he got to living with his biological mother and her husband, Patrick, Ian felt that he didn't belong all over again because he never felt that he belonged with the Sloans, which I I think is natural. Yeah, I get that. And I think this is natural, too. He still felt like an outcast. And he also felt like an outcast because his accent in Manchester, he had more of a Scottish accent. Regardless, he still tried. And he took a job as a butcher's messenger that Patrick Brady had found for him. And he also took the last name Brady at this point. Did his accent sound anything like this? They may take our lives. You know who's never made a movie that good? Bruce Willis. Is that right? (laughs) He's not Scottish, Mike. (laughs) Can't make a movie that good. He's not Scottish. There's Mel Gibson. (laughs) Or was he born Austria? Australia. Was he Australia? He's very Australian. In fact, early movies. They overdubbed Mad Max and I think even The Road Warrior because they couldn't understand what the fuck he was saying. Yeah, (laughs) that was Australia. That's right. Like it was his early movies. Look at that development doing that great Scottish accent. (laughs) Can't hold back talent. (laughs) Can't hold back anti Semitism either. (laughs) Well, he'll save that for later years, like, you know, the Passion of the Christ and such. So working for this butcher lasted about a year. Then Ian turned back to getting in trouble. He quit the job with the butcher and found a new one at a brewery. Not long after getting hired at the brewery, Ian was arrested for aiding and abetting. It was found out that he was stealing and selling lead seals. And he ended up being sentenced to two years in a borstal. What's a lead seal? I think from my understanding, it's like the... Something to do with brewing? The seal for one of the kegs or something like that. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? I mean, I guess if it's fucking up your business, but two years in a Borstal, which from my understanding is like a juvenile detention Mm. type deal, which back in these days, those places were not good. Those children's uh, correctional facilities were absolute hell. For yeah, like the, the 30s through, I would say, the 50s, even probably in the 60s, are just terrible places. Over here, too, not just in that mm-hmm. country. Yeah. No, I mean, Charles Manson, we'll get to him, obviously, someday. But his story is from being in the 
and the children's reformatory thing. It's terrible. They're still not great today for the record. Yeah. I'm 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 sure sure they're not. Yeah. So the Borstal was full and there wasn't going to be a cell available for Ian for three months. So instead he was sent to Strangeways prison in Manchester at 17 years old. This was a very serious adult prison. Um, is one of the only places where executions were carried out until 1964. This definitely was not a place for a 17-year-old kid who was stealing from his job to be put. That's just not great. Mm -mm. After a year, Ian Brady was moved to Hatfield, Borstal, in Yorkshire to be with other minors in a juvenile detention setting. Um, But by now, Ian Brady had learned how to survive in prison with murderers, rapists, like very brutal fucking people yeah survive or die and he also learned the operations you know not even surviving but just learned how all that stuff worked um so he got into further trouble for making prison wine and running a gambling operation he ended up attacking one of the guards and was sent to hall prison again with adults and ian decided to double down on a criminal life hall prison offered educational courses so ian took classes for bookkeeping because when he got out, his plan was to run an elaborate gambling operation outside of prison. Yeah, bookkeeping, bookmaking. What's the difference? <laughs> Same. At this point, I have no issues with him. He's a product of his environment and his upbringing. And, uh, you know, maybe not everyone turned out like he did, but it's not unexpected, right? Yeah. I mean, you're stuck in a prison with very yeah. hardened criminals what do you expect them yeah. to do? of course so when, when he gets in with kids his age but so kids he's gonna be like yeah i'm okay yeah. i'm gonna make wine and sell it and shit <laughs> when you put kids in a situation like that what do you expect them to come on as you know authors and stuff uh, certain authors have said that he abused animals and stuff when he was a kid and did that whole you know, classic serial killer McDonald triad yeah um discredited mcdonald triad <laughs> There are a lot of credible people from his life and, and things that are like, no, absolutely not. He didn't have any. And he says, I didn't do any of that. Stuff. Trying to fill a backstory. Yeah. Take kind of blame away from this prison upbringing. Maybe Ian was released in 1957 and he was unemployed for most of the next two years. So he was 19 at this point. Right. The whole illegal gambling operation wasn't coming together as fast as he had hoped. So in 1959, he put his bookkeeping skills to work and got a job keeping stock inventory for Millward's merchandising. Ian was still on the Nazi shit, always reading Mein Kampf at work. Um, and was pretty much just known as the weird guy who only wants to talk about Nazis. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, spoiler, he did not have any friends at work until two years later when Myra Hindley was hired as the new secretary. You want to talk about Hitler at lunch? (laughs) Like, no, he killed like my uncle 10 years ago. No, I don't want to talk about Hitler. You fucking clown. I'm surprised that they even let him get away with doing that at work. Even, you know, back then they're probably like motherfucker. No one wants to talk about Nazis. I want to eat my fucking bologna sandwich and just get back to work. Yeah. Like, you remember the battle of London where they, Oh, probably fish and chips. They probably had fish and chips, right? Sure. That's, that's all they eat over there and tea like, and crumpets. I think 50,000 people got killed in the Battle of London, right? With They're still rebuilding the, the city. The Luftwaffe yeah, like, bombing London daily, right? 
What is, what is it? 57? So seven, that was in 1940. So <clears throat> 17 years ago, but still. It's not Nobody was long. loving the fucking Germans in, in, in London or wherever in the UK. At I don't time. know where you're from, pal. I still don't love the fucking Germans. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I still got beef with them. We got heat, me and the Germans. <laughs> got mad heat. Not even over World War II, just other shit. I got personal business with the Germans. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> Myra Henley was born on July 23rd, 1942 in Gordon, Manchester to Bob and Nellie Henley. Myra's father was part of a parachute regiment stationed in North Africa for the first three years of Myra's life. So Nellie raised Myra alone with the help of Nellie's mother, Myra's grandmother. Her grandmother, Ellen Mayberry, would watch Myra while Nellie went to work as a machinist. Like Rosie the Riveter in uh, in this country. Never heard of her. <laughs> <laughs> it's very disrespectful. <laughs> when World War II ended and Bob came back to Manchester, the Henley family bought a house around the corner from Nellie's parents so Ellen could still help out easily. Bob had a really hard time adjusting back into civilian life, and when he wasn't working as a laborer, he was drinking at the bar. The family struggled as is, but in 1946, Nellie gave birth to their second daughter, Maureen, and this made the day-to-day -day life in the Henley house even harder. As a result, Myra was sent to live with her grandmother, Ellen, around the corner. And Myra loved this idea, and so did her grandmother. Everybody was happy with the situation. Myra got one-on-one -on -one attention, and she was still a couple of houses down from her parents and her sister, so... This was good for everybody in the situation. I feel like a lot of kids when they're that age would love to go live with their grandparents. And especially it's a couple houses down. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know what fixes a broken home? Another baby. Brings everyone together. It's not going to You know what help. fixes it better? <laughs> Condoms. Birth control methods. Yeah. My husband, uh, <laughs> he drinks at the bar and spends all our money every night. You know what we need? Another kid. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> All right. So she's living with her grandma. She lived happily ever after. And we'll get to part two next week. So Bob Henley was an extremely tough and stern man who expected Myra to be the same way. When Myra was eight years old, she came home from school crying because a boy had scratched her on the cheek and she started bleeding. Bob told her that if she didn't go back out and beat the shit out of that boy, he was going to beat her with a belt. Myra went back out, found the boy, and beat his ass. At that point and moving forward, Myra was rewarded by her father for beating up other kids, and that was the only real bonding that the two of them had. Later on, when we get to trial stuff next week, um, psychologist, forensic psychologist pointed this out when kids learn this at a very early age that they're rewarded for violence. Mm. Yeah, that can't it's, be good. It's going to cause an issue no matter what. Mm. It might not lead to murder, but it's going to cause an issue. Yeah, you don't say. <laughs> That's crazy. I also would say that I don't know how much you can fault Bob, you know, for seeing the kinds of things I'm sure he saw in, in North Africa in World War II and just wanting to protect your daughter. You know what I mean? But you don't say, go beat his ass or I'm going to beat your ass. I don't know, do you? I have an issue with that. Yeah. yeah. It's you don't, a, it's you a don't different threaten time. your kid that way. Yeah, but it's just a different time. And 
Well, it's fine, but coming not back my from time. war and seeing your daughter attacked and saying and just want. Well, then you go kick his ass yourself. Yeah, I would have more sympathy for him if he went and fucked up. That I'm not kid. excusing it, but you know, it's hard to put yourself in that situation. I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, but we had another serial killer we talked about. And it was the same thing. I remember his father said, about- "You go downstairs and beat that kid's ass, or I'm beating your ass." And then the dad came down and knocked out the other kid's dad. And Mm. yeah, I I don't remember. I I think it's just not a good situation at all. Is it true? Yes. That Myra finished this kid off with a pedigree. Yes. Told you. (laughs) I rest my case. (laughs) Kick to the gut, hook the arms, boom, head first into the concrete. Didn't even let his arms go to block it. Just he went the hard way. Yeah. All I'm saying is that <laughs> that's brutal. It's a single you've seen in combat and World War Two like that, and seeing your daughter attack like that. I just well, I think it's okay. It's a to different teach mindset. Your daughter to be tough, sure, and yeah. stick up for herself. Yeah, I, I'm I thinking with the you. Way this this went about it. I would not have an issue with him if he was like, "You need to go back out and kick that kid's ass." And then go fuck up that kid's dad. It like was the very last guy we talked about did go fuck up his dad or something. But when you threaten your kid and say, if you don't do that, then I'm beating your ass. Well, now you've put them into a spot where they're scared if they don't. All I'm saying is it's a complicated situation. Different times, maybe different times, complicated situation in school. Myra was considered a good student and a very mature girl for her age. She had issues with attendance because her grandmother would let her stay home every time Myra said she didn't feel well. Being absent so much led Myra to not being able to attend primary school, and she went to Ryder Brow Secondary School. She was really good at writing poetry and being a part of the swim team. Also, the fact that she was very mature led to Myra having a pretty successful babysitting business going on to have extra money. The only negative thing aside from the whole, you know, her father being abusive, was kids made fun of Myra for her broad hips, calling her, quote, square arse. She was a pog, and that's fucking hot. (laughs) Fat-ass white girl. (laughs) That's hot. It's not very nice. You shouldn't make fun of her for that. Mm -mm. I'm not sure square arse equates to fat-ass white girl. No, they're literally calling her a square ass, though. Like that means she's like a square, <laughs> though. Like a big ass. Uh, the square mean big, though. Broad hips. Like what? I mean, how else you? I don't know. This, pal? I'm, I'm confused by the square ass uh, description. I mean, I think the fact they're make funny, making fun of her mm. uh, for it says that clearly they're not intelligent kids. It's a good story to tell later, though. Myra Henley was my babysitter. She she didn't <laughs> kill me. <laughs> I like poets, though. I like poetry. Big fan. Roses are red. Violets are blue. (laughs) Pineapple on pizza. I'd rather eat poo. Oh! You're going to upset a lot of listeners, pal. It is so disappointing to know. Like, I assumed our listeners had terrible taste because they listen to this podcast. (laughs) But there are so many of them that love pineapple on pizza. It is enraging. I think it's like a 50-50 thing, right? It's got I don't be. know, man. When we did that poll earlier on in our show, like before we had much many listeners, mm-hmm. 
the pineapple on pizza one handily. I'm afraid mm-hmm. to do another poll. It's such a like I feel like it's not, gonna be 60 40 pineapple. It's just not a good taste. And that makes me want to punch people. <laughs> How do you have any like I'm not a fan, I guess, in general. So maybe this is where mine stems from. Here's my therapy session. I don't like the whole sweet savory combined thing. No. I either want sweets, which is not often, but occasionally, or I want savory. I don't want a fucking pineapple on my pizza. Pizza is one of the greatest things our shitty society has ever come up with. Why are you ruining it by putting a fruit on it? Like a sweet fruit on a pizza that's supposed to be savory with meats and cheeses and delicious vegetables. <laughs> Fuck you. If you have Hawaiian pizza as your go-to, I wasn't even thinking about this, but now Dave got me all fired up. It's, it's disgraziazzo. Oh, don't if man. <laughs> that's Italian. Mike would say, <laughs> I, Italian Mike might be in prison if he. I'd rather lick the, the toilet bowl than eat of the pineapple of pizza. <laughs> I'd rather put it in my tongue up your diarrhea asshole than eat of the, the pineapple of pizza. I just don't get it. <laughs> I'd rather uh, eat a Casey of Casey Anthony abortion than, than eat a pineapple on a pizza. She takes care of her abortions herself, pal. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for getting me all hot, pissed off now, people. I'm going to Naples, Italy this week, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure there's no fucking pineapple on I the pizza. I dare there. you. I dare you to ask. Should I? Well, I'm in Naples. No, because you're getting gutted out back. Well, I'm in, I'm in you're Na- going to be on the next pizza, pal. I'm in Naples, Italy. Can I get the pineapple on my pizza pie? Good luck. I look forward to that. Please record it. The last evidence we have of Dave existence. Have you seen this man? He was last seen in Naples, Italy, ordering pineapple on pizza. Probably swimming with the fishes. We'll get a, which one to call it on um, Amanda Berry and Fox eight news. For missing people. Missing Dave. <laughs> missing you. Cleveland or Dave. Dave Delapod missing oh. in Naples. <laughs> I would have rather eat an Ariel Castro's a ball sack than have a, a pineapple on a pizza. Amanda Berry, obviously, from the Ariel Castro episode. She now does a missing persons uh, little report every uh, night on our local news. Ah. Dave, Dave will be on it. <laughs> So throughout school, Myra became friends with a boy named Michael Higgins, who was two years younger than her. Michael was a really frail kid, and Myra protected him like uh, he was her little brother. One day, Michael asked Myra to go with him to a reservoir that kids use for swimming. Myra said she didn't feel like it on that day, and Michael ended up drowning. Myra blamed herself for the accident, saying that since she was on the swim team, she could have saved Michael if she wouldn't have told him no. That's a tough one. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's tough. I would not love that. Yeah, there's no way to go about that other no. than it's it's a tough situation. Michael's accidental death caused Myra grief to the point that she couldn't be controlled. 
Myra would go from crying hysterically to laying in bed for days, not making a sound. The only time she would leave the house was to go to a local church every night to light a candle for Michael. Myra got herself baptized into Catholicism, which was the religion Michael's family belonged to. And after this, Myra ended up dropping out of school. She like went to great lengths to get baptized into Catholicism. Like she is it that hard? I don't. She like went under a fake name. She went under the name Veronica and kind of faked this whole scenario to be able to get baptized. Hmm. It's very odd. It's been my experience that they take anyone. So I'm curious what the. I thought you have to do classes though, right? Eh, Yeah, I suppose. She just wanted to bypass all yeah, you the just kind of show up every technicalities. Right? Like, even do that too. Yeah, I love show Jesus. Up. Baptize me. Is that how it works? I don't know. It's not, I don't <laughs> think it's difficult. I don't remember. Look, I went through I the don't entire, my baptism. Anymore. I went through the entire process of all, all of that, and all I had to do was show up. I was never once asked my opinion on it. Your baptism? No, but like, weren't you like two like months old? First communion and confirmation. Oh yeah, when you're first accepted in the church, like all you got to do is show up. They just. What was, your, what was your confirmation name, Mike? Stephen after Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> That's a hundred percent a shoot. <laughs> I picked Stephen because of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Mine was Dominic. That's badass. After too. after Domino's Pizza, your favorite. Nothing in particular. I don't. What know. what is this about? I don't even know. What this you have to is. pick a confirmation name, and it's got to be something from the Bible, correct? I don't know where I got mine. I was. We were told our understanding was from the Bible. Stephen is in the Bible, but it's PH. And I was like, no, no, no. Mine will be with a V, like Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> and so I was, I was Michael David Stephen. Hell yeah, brother. And when the priest goes, oh, Michael, why did you pick uh, this name, Stephen? And I go, you sit there and you thump your Bible and say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Talk about Psalms. Talk about John 316. Austin 316 says, I just whooped your ass. And then you hit him with a stunner. And that was it. And you I hit was, the priest with a stunner. I was on the altar. <laughs> Opened up two, two Pepsi Colas, drank them, walked off. Two wine chalices. Yeah, right. Blood of Christ, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> and then they hit my music and I walked out and that was it. <laughs> Michael David Steven. So what's the name about? Like, Yeah, I don't know, pal. Oh, okay. I don't remember I never heard that why before. I mean, you had to have a name. A I, I don't remember name. either. I don't know where I got that name, but like, does anybody ever remember that? No. And like not. refer to you as no, that? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> in a word? No. I mean, I was in Catholic school. So there's a kid in my eighth grade class like, yeah, I'm not ready for all that. I That kid's my hero to this day because he's like, yeah, I don't want to fucking do that. I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to go with the flow with everyone else. but Which know. is how 99% of it was. Right. I remember thinking like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, yeah. I just, You have to do this. Yeah. So I look back on that kid to this day and I go, kid was fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. He's my hero. Well, he's in prison now. But still. <laughs> and he's going to hell, obviously. <laughs> that unconfirmed motherfucker is uh, my dude. His name was Ariel Castro. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, <laughs> <laughs>
So I'm a confirmed atheist. That doesn't really mean anything. I'm Dominic the confirmed atheist. <laughs> Hello. How do, you, how do you confirm yourself an atheist? Then? What's that process? What did you put yourself through? Like a bottle of whiskey and a blunt or something? <laughs> a black and mild and a, a, a leader of Crown Royal? I read a book Saturday. and I'm like, oh, look. I'm enlightened. Oh, now. oh, this makes more sense than my 12 years of education at Catholic school in the first two chapters. Yeah, this is what I am. That is, I, I know I say a lot of bullshit on this show. 100% truth. I picked Stephen as my confirmation name because of Stone Cold Steve no, Austin. No, I believe Mike, you. Mike, no one doubts you. <laughs> yeah, I believe no you. No one listening to the show doubts that that you was would, accurate. But you'd be surprised at the amount of people that don't think I fucked 10,000 bitches in college. <laughs> <laughs> they think it's a work. You're blurring the lines. <laughs> Sometimes I pull back that fourth wall. <laughs> That's good. Transparency. Hashtag Transparency. Hashtag Steven with a V. <laughs> You're not putting PH on my fucking confirmation certificate, father. <laughs> I gave him the middle fingers and stubbed his ass. I imagine that it's like a, <laughs> when Stone Cold stunned Shane McMahon, like you offer to drink some wine with the priest and then kick him in the stomach. <laughs> wine shoots out of his mouth and you stun him. That's what happened. The visual of eight, eighth grade Mike giving the priest on the altar a stunner is maybe the greatest thing I've ever envisioned in my entire life. Everybody horrified and shocked. <laughs> I like to think what I did was, yeah, like like he took <laughs> he took a drink, mm-hmm. kicked him in the gut, stunned him. He spit the wine out as he was going. Yeah, oh, like yeah. Shane McMahon style. Is that what it, what it was? Yeah. Is that, okay. <laughs> red red everywhere. Like not the kick. Like a bunch stunner. of old old eighty five year old ladies in the front row, like just slow mo getting plastered with red wine across their face. I had my eighth grade buddy in the back with a boombox with Stone Cold's music ready to play as I walked out. <laughs> to the disappointment of everybody in my life. <laughs> He's got his belt, his WWE belt oh, hidden man. at the altar. He puts it on after he stuns the priest. Yeah, they didn't have those back then. I wish they would have. He probably would have got a belt to the face. Can we do a video like recreate that? I'll do that. You got, you got a Pope you got, out. You got the pope. We can do I that. Do, I yeah. do have that. You just spit wine in a bunch of old ladies in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'd be fantastic. <laughs> Oh. Steven with a V. <laughs> Somewhere in the Catholic diocese, little Rolodex of who's been confirmed. It has my name and it is with a V. Oh, I've been confirmed. I'm going to heaven, buddy. Yeah. I'll be up there with oh, you. Oh, we're there. Ian's going he to won't. hell. He's not yeah, being he confirmed. Won't be there. Yeah, he I'm a, I'm he a, smokes uh, pot and he's, <laughs> he's going, he's Steubenville. He's going to hell. Well, sure. maybe we won't get in. He eats cold pizza. He smokes weed. He's from Steubenville. He's not going to heaven. At the pearly gates, I'm giving Peter the stunner and Dave's showing up with a beer truck and going to spray him down and we're going to be sent right back down to Ian. We're super Catholics. You're not going up there with us, buddy. <laughs> so get this one back on track, Ian. Good luck. Uh, So her friend died swimming and she blamed herself for it. So after Myra ended up dropping out of school, 
she got a job as a secretary at Lawrence Scott and Electrometers, which was an electrical engineering firm. During that time, Myra was like every other teenager. She went to dances, hung out at coffee places, smoking cigarettes, and was looking for a boyfriend. Myra found a boyfriend in Ronnie Sinclair, who was a year older than her. When Myra turned 17, Ronnie asked her to marry him. She said yes, but as the time got closer, things kind of began to set in a bit. At that time, we all know women were expected to conform to that whole kind of housewife style thing, being obedient to their husband, and Myra wasn't having it. She broke off the engagement with Ronnie and started to look into the military as a possible option. She went to London looking for something in life to excite her. She uses those words a lot throughout everything, you know, everything we're going to talk about next week and this week. She's always looking for excitement in her life. She didn't find anything in London, but she did end up finding a job at Millward's Merchandising as their secretary. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You ever have one of those days where you couldn't wait to get to sleep at night, but as soon as you put your head down, all your problems come racing back into your mind, keeping you up, tossing and turning all night? Yeah, it happens to a lot of us. It seems we all tend to focus more on our problems instead of focusing on solutions to these problems. How do you think your life could change if you had a different mindset on problems, focusing more on solving them as opposed to stressing about them day in and day out? It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode, especially when faced with challenges in life. But when you can learn to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. Working with a therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals no matter how big or small they are. Your mental health should be taken seriously. Nothing can cripple your day or stunt your motivation more than feeling depressed, anxious, or sad. We all have a lot of problems to deal with in our daily lives, be it the struggles of work, raising a family, or even paying bills. Focusing more on problem solving can help improve your mental health. And for that, BetterHelp is here for us. If you've been on the fence about trying therapy, BetterHelp is a great option for you. It's convenient, affordable, and entirely online. After filling out just a brief survey, you'll get matched with a therapist, and you'll be able to switch therapists anytime you want. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com Necro today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp.com Necro. And thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring today's podcast. Myra met Ian Brady at Millwards in 1961, and she said that it was the beginning of, quote, an immediate and fatal attraction. Later on, she wrote, quote, within months, he, he being Ian Brady, had convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me the earth was flat, the moon was made of green cheese, and the sun rose in the west. I would have believed him. Such was his power of persuasion. Stud. However, based on Myra's diaries, it didn't seem like it was like this whole kind of love at first sight type situation. The two of them had met in January of 1961, but her diary didn't mention Ian Brady until July 27th, 1961. Her diary actually spoke negatively of Ian Brady, like she was annoyed with him until December 22nd, 1961, when she agreed to go on a date with him to the movies. Is Ian a good looking man? I mean, Ian Brady, not our Ian. Obviously, Ian's a good-looking man. I think he is. I think he's an attractive guy. Seems to be, right? Yeah. He's no Tom Brady, but he's Ian Brady. Yeah, he's no Tom Brady. 
who can be. Who is though, right? That's my point. <laughs> Most books and other media say that they went to see Judgment at Nuremberg, which we're going to see in a minute. That Myra goes down that same rabbit hole of Nazi bullshit that Ian Brady went down. But according to Myra, the movie that they went to on their first date was King of Kings. A Jesus movie. Is that what it is? Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't look the up King what of it Kings. was. I thought it was about Triple H. <laughs> That's what I thought of, too. He's the King of Kings. Dude. It's about Jesus. Have you ever watched the real King of Kings? <laughs> well, sir, how dare you? Judgment Nuremberg's much better where they convict and hang a bunch of Nazis. In my opinion. Well, that sounds great, too. But I want to see Triple H fucking pedigree someone on their goddamn head. I mean, we're talking about the 60s here, though. Still. They knew. <laughs> they knew. Still. I think Triple H is a tulpa. Was <laughs> Triple H born in 1961? I don't think no, so. No, I don't think so. How old are you, Dave? Legitimately? I'm 50 years old, Mike. Thanks for asking. You're older than Triple H, I think. <laughs> How old is Triple H? I don't know. And you weren't born in 61, clearly. So. I was born in 71, Mike. Look at that. Thanks for clarifying. You're a whole decade older than this. Good job, pal. <laughs> See, you can make some old jokes now about them. Welcome to the club. Mm-hmm. It's fun stuff. Mm-hmm. This is all going to be extremely hilarious when one day Dave's giving a eulogy at my funeral. <laughs> Eating too many fucking chicken sandwiches from a gas station. I'm one, down, too, one too many. I'm baby. down 35 pounds, my man. Look at that. My summer weight loss challenge. So uh, I'll be. You already weight. beat the challenge, right? Oh, I beat my own personal challenge. Yeah. I'll be weighing less than you, fuck, and fat fucks. Pretty soon. <laughs> talk, to me, talk to me when you get back from Italy, pal. <laughs> Spoiler alert. It ain't going to happen. So going forward, their dates pretty much followed a strict pattern. They would go to the movies go back to Myra's to drink wine, and then Ian would give Myra reading material, which was all Nazi-related stuff. <laughs> that sounds super fun. It's just a ridiculous Let's relationship. drink wine and uh, read Nazi nonsense. Sounds like a Tuesday night in my house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, Aryan Mike with his normal Sunday or Tuesday night reading. Right. A glass of cab and a, uh, you know, some Hitler literature. <laughs> Then they would spend their lunch breaks at work reading this shit out loud. And Myra started to try and look like that perfect Aryan model. She bleached her hair, started wearing bright red lipstick. um, And she dressed in more revealing clothing like high black boots, skirts, and leather jackets. They just completely changed who she was. Mm. So essentially, she's under his spell. He's commanding her or molding her flip side of that. You could say that she's suffering from borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. We talked about that with Jody Arias or somebody molds themselves to be like, be what that person that they're obsessed with wants them to be. Okay. Well, but I, and I don't remember the Jody Arias case very closely, but he's also still giving her that literature and that line. So he is trying to mold her a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So something we need to point out before we get into all the gruesome stuff, there was abuse to some degree happening in their relationship. Myra wrote to a friend about how much she loved Ian, but in that same letter, she confessed that Ian had drugged her. Not too long after Myra wrote her friend, she asked her to tear up that letter. And I think that's a good example of Myra being completely under Ian Brady's control. And in early 1963, Ian Brady put that uh, blind acceptance of all this shit 
to the test. Well, hang on. He, he drug you and did what? Like, is there any more context to that? Or There not? isn't. I mean, not at all. The applied or the implied thing is that he raped her, like drugged her and did something okay. to her, you know, sexually, sexual assault. So he kind of like tested waters with how much he had Myra under his control and started planning a bank robbery and needed her to be his getaway driver. Immediately, without question, Myra began driving lessons, joined the Cheadle Rifle Club, and bought two guns. The robbery was never carried out, but Ian Brady's plan had been a success, and he later said, quote, I've reached the stage where whatever came to mind, get out and do it. I led the life that other people could only think about. That's who I picked for my getaway driver, a girl who's never driven a car before. It's a great plan. Yeah, it was tough for her to get a license, too. <laughs> And she was actually turned down from, um, you know, she got her hands on two guns, mm. but a, an instructor at the rifle club recommended that she not uh, be given a gun because, <laughs> because she had a bad temper and had angry outbursts. That's In this sad. country, you're awarded two guns for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you can't get a handgun in the UK for anything. So we're not, we're not even talking about a handgun. I'm talking assault rifles. You're <laughs> <laughs> angry and aggressive. Here's your two assault rifles. Punch a hole in the wall. You get two guns out of it. You're clearly a whore. That much is clear. When you get out of the joint, let's go have a beer. He's still writing fucking cards. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> All right, new line coming to necronownpod.com. <laughs> Dave, you better write these up. <laughs> and then, like, the back of the cards just have, like, a picture of Dave's face, like, smiling, like, this, like, a, you know, big smile. Like, yeah, here's your Dave Namapod card. Hope you feel better. <laughs> you can't drive for shit, so now you're in jail. As soon as you're paroled, let's... <laughs> I got it. <laughs> <laughs> he hit a wall. <laughs> Hey, you came up with some. You came up with some bangers. We're good. We're, we're right on those. So while this uh, really toxic relationship was ramping up, the two of them got into photography. Ian already owned an entry level camera, and he would take pictures of Myra and her dog puppet. Then eventually, they bought a higher end camera and invested in darkroom equipment. When you look online, there's lots of pictures of Ian and Myra together. Because that's how they spent a lot of their time together, was kind of taking selfies and pictures of each other. By June of 1963, Ian Brady had moved into Myra's grandmother's home. And by the beginning of July, he had started to talk about how to, quote, commit the perfect murder. In less than two weeks from Ian Brady talking about committing the perfect murder, he and Myra were out looking for a victim. On July 12, 1963, 16-year-old Pauline Reed was getting ready to go to a dance at the Railway Workers Social Club with her friends Barbara, Linda, and Patricia. Her friend's parents found out that there was going to be alcohol at this dance, so the three girls weren't allowed to go. Pauline decided that she was going to go alone, so at 8 p.m. she started walking. Her friends Patricia and Dorothy saw Pauline leave and decided to follow her. Like, they wanted to see if Pauline was actually, like, kind of going to get up the nerve to actually go to this dance alone. The girls took a shortcut so they would get to the club before Pauline did, but Pauline never showed up. When midnight rolled around and Pauline wasn't home, her parents went out looking for her. 
the next day they called the police and still nothing. It's kind of like she just vanished. Earlier that day, on July 12th, Ian Brady told Myra that it was time to commit the perfect murder. After work, he told her to drive a van they borrowed around while he followed on his motorcycle. And when he spotted a victim, he would flash his headlight. Driving down Gordon Lane, Ian Brady saw a young girl and signaled to Myra, but she didn't stop because she recognized the girl as an 8-year-old who lived next door to her mother. Sometime after 8 p.m., Ian signaled for Myra to stop. And at that point, Myra picked up Pauline, offering her a ride to the dance. Pauline knew Myra because Myra's younger sister, Maureen, went to school with Pauline, so she had no issue getting in the van. Also, Maureen and Pauline had dated the same local boy, 15-year-old David Smith. Once Pauline was in the van, Myra asked her to help search Saddleworth Moore for an expensive glove that she had lost, to which Pauline said yes. When Ian Brady arrived on his motorcycle, Myra told Pauline that he was going to help find the glove. Myra later claimed that she waited in the van while Ian took Pauline onto the moor. Ian Brady came back alone after about 30 minutes and took Myra to the spot where Pauline was laying dying. According to Myra, Pauline's clothes were half off and she had been nearly decapitated by two deep cuts to the throat. When Myra asked Ian, if he had raped Pauline, Ian Brady replied, quote, of course I did. Myra stayed with Pauline while Ian got a shovel that he had hidden nearby, then went back to the van while Ian buried Pauline. In Ian Brady's account, Myra was not only present for the murder, but she participated in the rape. The boy that Maureen and Pauline had dated was kind of on the wrong path, the David Smith guy. He had been arrested a couple times at that point. Police questioned him, um, and they were able to clear him as a suspect. So they were left with nothing to go on. He's going to play a big part in part two. So, really? Yeah. Okay. Stick around, folks. There's more. 15-year-old David Smith at this point kind of seems like a, a really random person, but he's going to play a big part mm. next week. On November 23rd, 1963, 12-year-old John Kilbride and his friend John Ryan went to see a movie that afternoon. When the movie ended at 5 p.m., they walked over to a local market to see if they could make some extra money helping vendors clean up. John Ryan left John Kilbride standing next to a garbage can near the carpet dealer's booth to catch his bus home, and that was the last time anyone ever saw John Kilbride. When John didn't come home for dinner, his parents, Sheila and Patrick, called the police. For a second time, a major search was carried out with police and thousands of volunteers searching the area for clues, but they found nothing. And again, it was just like John vanished into thin air. Did the police over there take missing persons reports seriously? They did. There were huge searches, like when, okay. like thousands of people yeah, out we, searching for these kids. We get a lot of these cases in this country. We're like, well, they probably just ran away. They haven't been gone for 48 hours. No, they took it serious. Okay. Yeah. After John Ryan left John Kilbride, Ian and Myra offered uh, John Kilbride a ride home, saying that his parents might be worried that he was out so late. They also promised him a bottle of sherry, which I learned was wine over there. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I didn't know that. Once John Kilbride was inside the car, Ian Brady said that they would have to take a detour to their home for the bottle of sherry. While driving, Ian said 
you know what, before we go grab that bottle of sherry, we need to stop off and look for a glove. Myra lost in the moors. This lost glove shit. It's Come not, on. it's, this is it's not, not the last, it's not the last time the glove it's shows up. It's not convincing up. at all. When they, these are kids though, that they're picking up. Right. So it's like, Oh, we're going to stop off. Yeah. It's just, I mean, and it's it, a different time as well. It's the sixties. You're right. You're right. When they got to the moor, Ian took John Kilbride with him while Myra waited in the car. Ian Brady raped the boy and tried to slit his throat. But when John fought back, Ian Brady strangled him with a shoelace. At that point, John Kilbride was buried in the moors. It seemed like the searches for Pauline and John Kilbride got to Myra to some degree because on at least two occasions, she drove out to the moors alone to check on the graves to make sure that they weren't disturbed. So there's some type of a conscious going on here in some form. I mean, revisiting crime scenes is not my definition of the perfect murder. No, it's not. No. <laughs> no. I mean, unless you're, what, in a bush masturbating to it, like which one I call it did, fucking... Uh, uh, was our dude that used to watch them find the bodies and get Peter off Curtin. to Peter Curtin yeah. and get off to that shit. In his mind, that's perfect, right? <laughs> you could remix Peter Curtin with a good fucking EDM song, right? Are we going to start, start auto-tuning all this shit? We should. <laughs> So cool, Tommy did now coming out the music playlist to Spotify. DJ Khaled. <laughs> it's a fucking it's a great new mix. Oh, I'm trying to swallow my drink. <laughs> DJ Khaled. I'm not a DJ Khaled fan. Every song. DJ Khaled. <laughs> he does say the same I'm things a lot. Not a fan. <laughs> I don't like that guy at all. So we're DJ not. DJ Khaled. We're not going to be working with DJ Khaled then. No, that, we're not. Okay, we're not going to reach out to him. It's not good. All right. So yeah, Myra seemed like she was having a bit of a conscious about this, but regardless, seven months later, another child went missing, and that's where we will pick back up on part two. That's a good setup. Uh, interesting backstory. A couple, uh, couple of the first killings. All right. I'm intrigued. Well, we'll probably say final uh, thoughts for next week. So, Ian, what do you got from a uh, shout out standpoint? For iTunes, I have one for B Drios 12, Jennifer D 88, Miranda T, Tammy Lynn 410, Ross Hour, an M, and then a whole bunch of J's. Sam9322 and Kittens McTavish. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. Dave, what do you got? On the foreign reviews, I have uh, Haley Bernuski from Canada. Naomi from Australia. She uh, spelled it phonetically. because Maybe she didn't think I could pronounce it properly. <laughs> IRL Lenny from Ireland. Nicolo81 from Australia. Tino2602 from Great Britain. Rhiannon UK with an updated uh, review from uh, Great Britain. Vichy Bear from Great Britain. And Alexandra H33 from Great Britain. Thank you very much for these uh, overseas reviews. They're fantastic. 
On the military shoutouts, I have Daryl Salivari, Army vet. Thank you so much for your service, buddy. Appreciate it. I love these uh, military shoutouts. They're fantastic. Mm. Uh, yeah, we're getting a good amount. Big too, fan. So that's Guys, cool. thank you so much for your service. In the DM that he sent me, he said that there's a movie called Outpost on Netflix that is based around the unit that he was in in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to check that out. Good stuff. Thanks, man. Really yeah. appreciate it. And thanks for reaching out. All right. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, at Necronomapod. Amazon.com, search Necronomapod for all of our merch. Patreon.com slash Necronomapod for all of the bonus content. We have a hell of an October coming up. So uh, at least on Patreon, uh, or our full schedule is going to be awesome. But Patreon, we got some big stuff coming up. So uh, make sure to sign up if you're interested in checking out our extra content. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers.